Life Audio. Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard with Gospel App Ministries. We're beginning to look at the Song of Songs in the Old Testament. We're doing a lot of background work. We're going to get into the verses pretty soon. Look, it's been an embarrassing little book for so many evangelicals. And, and no greater than today. And why? Because of the sexual imagery, of course. And it's in the Bible. Secondly, <laughs> so I started to show how our views of the book, how it's been historically interpreted in Judaism and Christianity, has been affected by dualism, the dualism that infected the early church through Neoplatonism and the Gnostics. I mean, it was in the air they breathed. And it's really too bad because it's affected our very gospel. Listen, our relationship with God is not sexual, right? That's creepy. That's inappropriate. But it is intimate. And I think far more intimate than we've been free to explore. And that may bother you. So be it. Just hear me out. I'm just trying to unpack the scriptures. The, the Song of Songs is in the canon. Um, and so here, here's the question, that the, the pushback. Should our children and singles be exposed to such sexual imagery, Right. We're trying to keep them on the straight and narrow. And I get the concern. I think it's valid. I think it's a great dialogue to have. Uh, but let me toss something into the end of the dialogue, right? Let's just be legit. I just got back from Israel. And, you know, I'm going to put it on Facebook and uh, some other places. But if you take a look at the typical ancient floor plans, I think <laughs> you would be shocked, right? So think two room, maybe three room, including storage bungalow, either in a cave or uh, in a rock house where everyone slept, get this, in the same room. Mom and dad, if they were middle class, they slept on a rock bench and all of the six to 10 children on the floor right in front of them. That's how they were raised. And my point is that you just can't escape it. The children were exposed to normal, healthy sex between a husband and a wife without getting their tidy whities in a bunch like we do today, um, right? It, it would have just been normal. They would have heard also the Song of Songs read aloud every Passover around the family table or, or, or in the synagogue. And so I'm suggesting they got the imagery without getting triggered like we do. That's what I'm suggesting. We can have that discussion, but let's add all of this to the mix. I mean, I think our culture is inappropriately sex-charged. Uh, we can talk a lot about that. Maybe should I should do a series on that, but that's a different problem altogether, and I don't want to lose or toss out intimacy with God that we're longing for. We're a very lonely society. Um, I don't want to toss that intimacy with God out with the bathwater, Okay. All right, what do you think? Bill at gospel-app.com. Push back. Love to hear what you think. So here we go. Let's keep going. Today, we're going to look at eros, where we get the word erotic and agape, and uh, figure out healthy ways to take a look at them. Before we do, this would be probably a good time to get a brief word from our sponsors. Thank you for your patience. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410.
I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. All right. Welcome back. Uh, so often today, at least in popular usage, we Christians, you know, we, we try to make a distinctive, a real stark line between agape and eros. It's oversimplified, but we're going to go with it. In our mind, they're the opposite on a love spectrum. This is partially affected by the, the all-too-clean distinctions within the word for love that's been popularized by, I mean, C.S. Lewis primarily, but it's kind of the way we speak today in evangelicalism and Christianity. Agape, we understand, is, quote, the unconditional love of God, right? It's godly love. And look, nobody disagrees. We're called to love God, ourselves, and others with agape. Uh, we get confused by labeling, labeling God's love as agape and ours typically as phileo and eros. But the truth is, listen, agape is the normal street Greek word for love. I mean, here's a good example. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, this is 43 to 46, you've heard it was said, love agape, right? Your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you love agape, right, those who love you, what re reward will you get? Now, listen, are not even the tax collectors doing that? So the tax collectors are agapeing others to get a reward. It's a, it's a common Greek word. We have, uh, we've, we've re-identified it as something religious. Uh, so a, a tax collectors do it, but it's not, I mean, we can't say that's what God is doing, right? To get a reward, that would be absurd. So a separate category of agape for God. So what does that look like? Well, um, for the, for the word agape, it refers to pure, sacrificial love that intentionally desires another's highest good. That's the agape of God. It desires another's, the other's highest good. So the agape of God is, it's a love that's not born out of selfish emotions or desires or feelings or familiarity or attraction. It's not generated based on um, perceived worthiness or loveliness of the object. It's, it's a incongruous love, one theologian put it. When we think of agape, we think of faithfulness and commitment and selflessness, sacrifice for other without expecting anything in return, right? Well, theoretically, that's it. That's the agape of God that we're supposed to do with him and with others and with ourselves. But who does that? And here's why I'm very critical of the literal school of interpreting the Song of Songs. I mean, the implication of so much of the teaching is that given enough education and effort, we men and women can and should choose to love others, including enemies. And, and you know, we toss out those testimonies and say, do that uh, with agape, right? This God's agape. And why else would God command it for, for us to do that? We must be able to source agape somehow from our brain, 
right? We must be able to choose to agape. All we need is enough education and discipleship, convincing and guilting. But is that right? See, I believe that there is a different reality in the mix. Post-fall, we are supposed to love each other with agape, with the love of God. We are, but we don't. We won't, and in a real sense, we can't. Listen, look around. It's going to explain a lot, right? Look at the state of the world, the church, Christian marriages, families, friendships, teenagers. Something's something's off kilter. How many centuries of education about love does it take for us to get it right? Or, Or are we missing something? How about this? Here we go. Listen, only God agapes. I mean, that that the highest sense, only God does it. Post-fall, that is. I should, but I don't. I won't. Well, well, that doesn't seem fair that God would demand that I agape then when, when I can't seem to do it. Well, here's the dirty little secret. Again, my, my goal, is my passion is to help uh, frustrated Christians hear the music again. So here's, you can hear the band begin to play in the background. Here's the dirty little secret. I can't agape with my own strength, but I can, in humility and need, access God's agape for myself and others through the Holy Spirit in my inner being. That's Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, meaning it's God sourced. I can access it from God through the Holy Spirit, and it can come out through my hands and feet and eyes. <sighs> Doesn't that sound Right? Look, Christian discipleship, then, is less about becoming more like Jesus. That's the popular statement. It's more about first becoming more dependent upon him. So let's think agape. It's less about me choosing to love more with whatever's in my brain, all twisted up and beat up and wounded and fearful, insecure. Rather, it's more about me learning how to access the power that comes from God to begin to grasp the height and width and length and depth, the vastness, right, of the agape of Jesus. Again, Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. God's agape is from God, <laughs> right? Yeah, Captain Obvious. It's not a function of how many books I've read or conferences I've attended or my willpower. Honestly, it's, it's a function of my need. And most of the time, I don't have that. I won't recognize it. It's going to work harder. So the path to agape is to accept my love is so beat up and needy and self-focused and frightened. It, it just has very little to offer other people. You know, it takes far more than it gives. It's needy. And listen, in this new humble posture, I raised my hands, empty hands, admittedly empty hands, to the pursuing lover, God, King, and asked for him to make me feel his love for me and for other people. Listen, if that's true, a child could do it, um, right? Uh, a beat-up person could do it. A tra- traumatized person can do it. A simple person can do it. An uneducated person can do it. A new Christian can do it. But look, for beat up, abused, frightened, depressed queen, it, it takes over 100 verses in the Song of Songs for her to begin to get it. And here the queen's problem, like mine, is largely that it isn't until she is immersed in the agape of the king god over and over six sometimes torturous love cycles that her wounds are going to have healed enough um, and her inner Critical working models have quieted enough to be able to truly be loved and then to love the king back. And when she does, it's remarkable. All right. I hope that's making sense. So what about agape? Short answer, 
Only the God King does real agape. Agape then in its purest form, which is what we're supposed to do, 100%, is so identified with God alone that John could boldly say that God is agape. God is agape. And it's only God sourced, 1 John 4, 16. Uh, you see, I can learn to receive this agape, his, and I can funnel his agape like a conduit, like a pipe, but I do not agape, not within you know, the temporal boundaries between the fall and the resurrection. Agape is exclusively of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, whose chief desire is to pour it into our unloved and unloving hearts, Romans 5.5. 5. Right? Am I making my case? God-sourced agape, not the human-sourced reductive counterfeit, is so powerful. Paul was convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from that, the agape of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord, right? That is in Christ Jesus our Lord, not in my brain. That's Romans 8, 38 and 39. Human love, man, it's easily divided. Look at look at the divorce rate. So there's no greater expression of agape, I think, than 1 Corinthians 15, right? This is the go-to chapter for Christian weddings, and it's almost always followed by the pastor or preacher saying, now go and love each other with agape. <laughs> but that's a serious misapplication, like I've been saying. You, we're getting it, right? Paul's not saying go and do likewise. He's, he's basically telling us the nature of God's agape. Well, the good news, you can bring your heart, your broken, twisted, unloved heart to the God King and ask that he would make you feel his love for you. Well, that's got to help. Then you can beg your God King to make you a funnel of his agape for your spouse. And I'm telling you, she's going to appreciate it. He's going to appreciate it. They deserve so much more than what comes out of your shredded heart or mine. And it's by this purest God-sourced agape that we are to love God, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. 37, our neighbors, Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, and even our enemies, Matthew 5, 43 to 46. Look, how are you going to love your enemies? I keep telling people, why would I love my enemies? That's why I'm calling them my enemies. I don't love them. But God, God's love is so much different than mine. Well, Again, back to the literal approach of interpreting the Song of Songs. I mean, implicitly, the reader is to see the, <clears throat> they say, the high standard of the love presented in the song and lean into it. You know, work harder, choose to love more. So choose to be more selfless. Is the song about agape? Yes. It's about the agape that is from the God King alone that comes upon a love-starved, beat-up queen who struggles under its, its power and reality. That is until she miraculously gets it and is changed and begins to love the king correctly. That's the idea. It's, it's a gospel presentation. So it's not just about a spiritual love that's only for purified souls who've completed some ascetic journey, like the allegories. It's not about the love of a spouse or a friend who's really chosen to love his or her beloved selflessly, like the literalist. Well, what, what about eros? I mean, where does it fit in? Everyone knows eros is intimate love, right? That's where we get the word erotic. Think sexual, carnal desire. You can hear in churches and theological circles, lust. It's commonly said that lovers who are experiencing eros are completely preoccupied with each other. And the implicit understanding is 
it's exciting, pleasing, desirable, valuable within a framework of committed marriage, but it's a lesser love. This is the common understanding in contrast to agape. So we Christians would say agape is the higher love. Eros, it would seem, is by nature self-seeking, self-serving, carnal, fallen humanity, and even animalistic. It's a lower hunger. Well, but is that right? I mean, that's probably what you've been taught. And here we go. Since it's an important concept, agape, it's mentioned over 200 times in the New Testament alone. All right, makes sense. For men and, and God and women and God, right? Humans and God. But here's a quiz. Com- contrasting, how many times do you think eros is mentioned in the New Testament even? Is it 200? 100? 50? 20? <clears throat> Well, you I mean, you know, when the speaker says something like this, it's going to be a shocker, right? Well, it's not even mentioned in the New Testament at all. It's just not. <laughs> it, the Greeks talked a lot about it outside the New Testament. It's only mentioned in the Old Testament twice, Proverbs 7.18 and Proverbs 30.16. And in both cases, it's not what one would expect. Uh, here's Proverbs 7.18. Come, let's drink deep of love. And that's phileo in the Septuagint. Till morning, let's enjoy ourselves with love, eros. Well, I don't know. It doesn't seem too crazy to me. The, uh, the Septuagint scribe awkwardly places eros in parallel with phileo, which is friends, you know, brotherly love, Philadelphia. And here's uh, Proverbs uh, 7.18 with my translation. Let us drink love deeply. Let us together taste love. It's just really simple. It's hardly scandalous. You with me? Same thing with with Proverbs thirty sixteen. So what are we what are we to make of eros? Um, how can we speak of it related to agape and God? All right. Well, this is another good time to take a short break from our sponsors. Again, thank you for patience and maybe even a cold shower. So we'll see you in a moment. All right, welcome back. Uh, thank you for your patience there. All right, we're, we're talking about eros and agape and God. <laughs> That's usually not a sentence we hear in church. Here we go. As we've as we've been talking about, popularly understood, we attribute agape to God, but not eros. All right, so eros is for fallen humanity, and and, and can be okay within the context context of marriage. So eros, we conclude, is of the flesh, sarks uh, in the Greek, and a lesser corrupted love, which is a competitor to a higher value agape. They fight against each other. But is that right? Here's the uh, late Pope John Paul II's provocative teaching on the theology of the body. Uh, I think this is about his speaking, not him saying it, but there's a great quote. Eros, in and of itself, isn't meant to be avoided. Precisely the opposite. Eros is meant to find a home in the human heart by being united to agape. What? Being united to agape? All right, back to the quote. For most of us, the erotic is not something we intentionally yearn for, meaning we boring Christians. We usually associate it with sexual arousal, which can overtake and impel us to act in the heat of the moment frequently without full consideration of the consequences. However, this is not true eros, but it's counterfeit. Uh, John Paul II calls it reductive desire. 
John Paul observes that because of the fall, we're now immersed in a value blindness. I think he's absolutely right on this, which moves us to subconsciously reduce the other to their sexual value alone. Can they satisfy my longings, my desires a little or a lot? That's that's broken relationships. And this is the core of Eros on the destructive side of the spectrum. Consciously or subconsciously, fallen men and women without transforming power of the spirit are going to tend to use others to satisfy their own sexual appetites and desires. It's a selfish side of Eros. Selfish side of Eros, meaning that there's a selfless side of Eros. We're going to get to that. Uh, And that's not God's original plan for relationships. I think we can see that in the Garden of Eden, where our four parents' desires were for the other, at least until the fall. That's what we think. So John Paul II talks about a godly eros, a selfless eros, which he defines as an inner power that draws uh, humanity towards all that is good, true, and beautiful. Really? Here's another quote. Authentic eros was experienced as a profound receptivity to the other for his or her own sake. As a unique and unrepeatable person whom God called it a being with their own journey and path to holiness— While reductive eros considers how to discharge sexual tension, authentic eros creates a bond of belonging with the other through a reciprocal giving and receiving of the gift of self. Far from being opposed to agape, to self-sacrificial love, eros is integral to the full experience of human love because redeemed eros sees and embraces the whole value of the other from top to bottom, left to right, inside to outside, for whom we want to sacrifice. The entirety of the beloved is received and welcomed, even the prickly and shamed-filled parts. You see that? I mean, there's this this uh, uh, composite eros and agape, and let's toss phileo in there as well, uh, that can be selfless, and that God has created in our brain um, uh, to, to help love other people and make them feel loved. And we don't have to talk about sex. We're talking about a deep, deep, deep intimacy. It doesn't have to be physical. So how can we access this redeemed godly eros? Again, there's a question that we don't hear much of. We can re-experience our intimate bond of belonging to Christ by faith. Here's Benedict, uh, Pope Benedict. God's eros for man is also totally agape. I love it. God is at the same time a lover with all the passion of a true love Eros is thus supremely ennobled, yet at the same time, it is so purified as to become one with agape. That's just not how we talk about love, and I think we're lesser for it. Again, we're not talking, uh, it doesn't have to be physical. It's the brain chemicals popping in our in our brains that makes me feel loved. Eros didn't just happen after the fall. There was a holy and godly eros sourced from God in the garden in perfection in both Adam and Eve. It only became twisted and selfish and reductive after the fall. So, look, Song of Songs can rightly be seen as a redemption of that full-orbed love of God, agape. Redeemed eros, phileo, both between us and God and between humans. It's, It's a... Uh, presentation, exposure of a purified eros united with agape, and not only between God and an individual, but also the ideal relationship between husband and wife. Again, but this has to be accessed from God. 
not just worked harder at. I mean, we should work harder, don't get me wrong, but the first thing we do is to access it from God. A closer look at Paul will show his consent for this. He understood that the so-called flesh, right, sarks, is distinct from the physical body. Sarks is a generative source of this destructive eros, destructive eros. It's, it's, it's a side of humanity that's sinful and selfish, self-serving. In Galatians 5, 20 to 21, Paul explains that Sarks produces hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, and envy. And it's not the physical body that's against the spirit. It's one's internal bent to selfishly use others for our own enjoyment and power that's against the spirit, right? And I agree with Paul that a good term for destructive or reductive eros, a good New Testament term is porneia. We don't see eros in the New Testament, but we do see porneia, where we get pornography. At its core, it's the use of someone for our own selfish reasons. It thrives in power and balanced relationships where one can and does use and abuse for their own benefits, sexual gratification, power trips. It's uncaring. It's objectifying. It's destructive. It reflects an imbalanced power structure and relationship that puts one of the parties at a disadvantage. It's born out of shame and shaming. It's often angry. It measures, it grades, it criticizes, it blames, it shames, it averts the eyes because they're telling. But there's good news. God's agape, heavenly agape, holy agape, and eros can be accessed by spirit-filled men and women, boys and girls. And such an experience can begin to produce a more selfless love for others, agape and eros and phileo. We can access that faith through the Holy Spirit in our inner being. That's Ephesians 3 again. This is the love that is portrayed in the song. And at two levels, first, far beyond the cultural norms. There's a very high mutual love between the human man and the human woman. Here's what Marsha Falk says about the song. The song offers a thoroughly non-sexist view of heterosexual love, as is apparent in many poems in the song. Women speak as assertively as men, initiating action at least as often. So too, men are free to be as gentle and vulnerable and even as coy as women. Men and women are are similarly praised by each other for their sensuality and beauty, not only in the wasp, which is the worship poems, but throughout the song. It may even turn out that this ancient text has something new to teach us about how to redeem sexuality and love in our fallen world. Wow. I think she's right, by the way. Uh, here's Phyllis Tribble. Possessive adjectives do not separate their lives. My garden and his garden blend in mutual habitation and harmony. Even person and place unite. The garden of eroticism is the woman. Song of Songs is evolved far beyond the typical patriarchalism of that day. And today, it's the message of God. In Christ, there is no male or female, meaning no sex gets a pass and moves to the head of the line. In fact, the song truly does emphasize the role of the woman. Um, here's another quote. One of the three speakers, the woman, is the most prominent. She opens and closes the entire song. Her voice dominates throughout. And by this structural emphasis, her equality and mutuality with the man is illuminated. Women, then, are the principal creators of the poetry of eroticism. I think that's Phyllis Tribble, I'm pretty sure. Whatever, whoever said that, they're absolutely right. Sorry about that. Secondly, the song portrays a perfect combination, 
composite eros, phileo, and agape of God, the holy kind, towards men and women equally. And here, once again, the stature of the woman is highlighted. She was chosen by God to represent all redeemed humanity, male and female. I mean, in a higher sense, we are all in her. She, the female, represents all of the children of God, female and male alike, who long for a greater experience of the height and width and length and depth of the love of Christ. We are, men and women, the bride of Christ, loved and yet who struggle with that love. It's a high honor. How does it strike you? That God's love for you is both perfect agape and eros. Does it cause you concern? Does it drive you nuts? Are you going to reject it out of hand because that's not what you've heard? I mean, do you feel like this might just be enabling you towards a path of sin? <laughs> that you were saved from that, you know? Or is it, is it beginning to make some sense? Is it intriguing? Um, you know, maybe you're asking, I wonder if there is something that, that I've missed so welcome to Song of Songs, as it should be. And you can disagree, but but dialogue, Bill at gospel-app.com. Let me know what you're thinking. We can we can dialogue. I'll try to respond to you. Be prepared to be scandalized because it's not what you've heard. Our brains have just, a, we our culture, we, we just can't distinguish between godly eros and carnal pornea. Oh my gosh. And I get it. If the truth were known, we're largely strangers to heavenly eros because I, we just haven't talked about it. Um, and we experienced it once in our lives when the Spirit entered our inner being as the incarnation of God's agape and eros towards us as we are. I'm talking about your salvation, um, but maybe it's been a long time. Well, no worries. It's our hope that we can begin to see the difference. Uh, Church of Christ needs a booster shot of heavenly eros. So in the song, God presents himself as being heads over heels in love with the most unlikely and unworthy person. You, me, the rest of those Christians, you know those, you know those Christians. (laughs) The queen, representing men and women, boys and girls, isn't evil or vile. She's broken, but she's desirable to him, attractive to him. But as we'll see, she's been relationally scarred. She's no longer chaste. She's impure. Uh, She's unloved by family, by friends. She's lonely. She's riddled with shame. I'll show you all of that. Nothing has hurt her more than relationships. And so this one, who could potentially hurt her a lot. So she's afraid of it. She's dark yet lovely. Such ambivalence. So look, you know, she's not the kind of person who might be interested in some philosophical view where her soul needs to be set free to climb into the heavens. She's not looking for seven marriage tips and a dating manual to be a better partner. You know, God pursues her with his agape and his eros because she desperately needs that for healing. So, so I mean this in, with all due respect. It's time for the tea drinkers to move aside or to open up. Um, I'm going to leave the last word for the commentator, Phyllis Tribble. Uh, she wishes that the angelical guard at the Garden of Eden would keep out of the song special garden all who lust, all who moralize, all who legislate or exploit, and also turn away literalist <laughs> so that the lovers could could unhindered and with no shame romp and roam in the joys of eroticism 
Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away, for lo, the winter is past. The rain is gone and over. Flowers appear on the earth, and the time of pruning has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my fair one, come away. That's Song of Songs 2, 10 to 13. Thanks again to LifeAudio.com for their platform and support. Next podcast, we're going to get into the school of interpretation that we have labeled that we think fits is going to be the prophetic marriage gospel, prophetic marriage gospel. Um, You know, it's not that welcomed in the literal or allegorical school, but we think we're right. So we had to coin a new descriptor. And we're going to represent the prophetic marriage gospel school of interpretation. You'll, you'll see. We'll say more. Make sure you follow us on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. Share the link with your pastor, family, and friends with people who struggle with love. I mean, think of that uh, divorced husband or wife or um, uh, the husband or wife who's, who's suffered from an affair or the, the teenagers who are dating, all of these stuff, revolutionary. And I think it could change people and could change churches. Certainly would make it more interesting. All right, we'll see you next time. Take heart, child of God. Hello, this is Dr. Doug Grotheis, host of Truth Tribe, where we seek the truth through reason and evidence about what matters most. And we are not tribal since truth is for everyone. Please join me at the Truth Tribe as I discuss the reasons for Christian faith, the Christian worldview, and moral issues such as abortion and gender ideology. To listen now, go to lifeaudio.com or search Truth Tribe on your favorite podcast app.